Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. I love to pray before bringing the Word of God, so I just love to stand and pray. Good morning! Now, I'm going to find out if you're more awake than the 9 o'clock. I bet you are, right? Because you're smart. You slept in, right? Hey, listen, um, I am not a guest speaker, so just wipe that out right there, okay? I am part of the family around here. I did indeed come 20 years ago, and so you got to understand, you got Papa, you, you, you got Papa Mike, you got Mama Rachel, Uncle John is in the house today, okay? Can you say amen to that? So... I just have to say, I'm so honored, excited, delighted to be here. First of all, the worship was amazing. Wasn't it amazing? Can you thank God for that? <laughs> Secondly, you guys have been doing so much for the kingdom of God. And I mean, just, I'm so proud of you. And uh, I was at dinner with Pastor Mike last night and hearing the stories of what God is doing here, I'm in awe and I love it. And I'm I just, I'm so proud to call you brother, uh, brothers and sisters, amen, and be a part of this family. I know a lot of you are, and, and can I just say, do you know you have amazing leaders? You do. I, I came away from the dinner last night just in awe of how much Mike was saying, you know, if God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done, but God can do anything. And just the, the humility that I heard, and you know, he... He's an athlete. I mean, he's, he's trained to be, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty aggressive. But when you meet an aggressive guy that knows that God's the one that does everything, you meet a guy like David, amen? And so you need to thank God every day for your pastors, amen? All right, now, I know a lot of you are standing there looking at me like, who are you? Well, the best way I know to introduce myself to you is to introduce you to my family. Can I do that? All right, so here's a picture of my family. That is my amazing, gorgeous, beautiful wife and best friend of 34 years of marriage this year, Lisa. She's actually, she travels all over the world and preaches the gospel. She's in Amarillo, Texas this morning preaching. And uh, I get to see her tonight. I can't wait. We've been away from each other for about 10 days. So, uh, and then our four sons are there. And uh, our oldest son, Addison, on the left, he's the COO of Messenger International. That's his wife, Juliana. And then next, the three on the right of Lisa, they're available. Okay. <laughs> so I know there's a lot of great looking girls, godly girls, fear God in healing place. Just line up afterwards with your application, okay? But anyway, uh, Austin is right next to Lisa. He is the head of our marketing department. He's an amazing young man. Alec is right next to him. You'll actually get to see him maybe in a video today. And then he's in our video department. And then Arden is our youngest and tallest. He's at Hillsong uh, Leadership College down in Sydney, Australia. I, I preached for all the services down there last year, and Arden just looked at me. He was my travel assistant, and he said, Dad, I need to come here. So I really was like, darn, he's my favorite golfer in the family. And so the little ones, those are my G-babies. Now, you say, what is a G-baby? I'm way too young to be grandpa, so it is G-daddy and G for short. So I got to highlight my Gs. There is Asher. That's really how cute he is. So if you got a nice, cute little girl, let's talk, okay? And then this is Sophia Grace. There is no boy cute enough for her, so don't even talk to me about her. 
And let me explain why I'm so protective over her. She is the first girl born in the entire Bavir or Toscano clan since 1967. So you better believe that is a celebrated little girl. And I will preach better now that I've seen her. It's the truth, okay? And then now here is Lizzie Hope. Oh my gosh, she came along. So we actually got two girls in a row. And uh, she loves food. She's just so cute. Look at her. Oh my gosh. Oh man. And then our four, our, our, our little boy is on the way and he's going to be born in August. So that's my family. And the more I love my family, the more I realize how much God loves us because we're his big family. Can you say amen to that? Now, I want to ask a question. Do you want a message out of me today, or do you want your life changed forever? Which one do you want? Shout it out. Life changed forever. Well, that's a really good request, but the Bible says we do not have because we do not ask. And so we're going to ask God for that, all right? So can we believe God for that? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this church, this amazing church that you've raised up to be such a bright light, not only to the Louisiana area, but to the nations of the world. I'm asking today, Holy Spirit of God, that you would once again do what you love to do. Invade this sanctuary and reveal Jesus to us in a way like we've never known him before. I'm asking that you would not only give me your word today, but your heart to deliver it. And as you do this, Lord, may we behold Jesus in a way that we go from glory to glory to glory as by the spirit of the living God. Let this be a day that we'll never forget for I decree it will be done in here today on earth as it is in heaven. And for this, we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor in Jesus mighty, wonderful name we pray. And everybody that agrees shouts Come on, thank God for what he's going to do in your life. Amen, amen, amen. You can be seated. Now, we are doing an amazing series on the Holy Spirit, and I get to be a part of it, and I'm so excited, except I'm going to do it tonight at 5 o'clock. So this is Double Dip Sunday. Y'all know that? So I'm going to, this morning... Tonight, I'll speak on the Holy Spirit, but this morning, I'm going to speak to you out of the newest book that I've written called Good or God, Why Good Without God Isn't Enough. Now, let me open it up by saying this. Today, in our society, and this mentality has even crept into the church, if we identify something as being good, we automatically assume it's of God. In other words, we have almost made good and God synonymous Because after all, aren't we born with the inherent knowledge of what is right and wrong? But now let me say this. If good is so obvious, why then does the book of Hebrews tell us that we have to have discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil? Why does King Solomon cry out at the beginning of his reign, God, give your servant an understanding heart that I might be able to discern between good and evil. Now, if you look at the context of this, you will realize that King Solomon is just about to take the throne of Israel and God appears to him, which that in itself is mind-blowing. And God says this to King Solomon. He said, ask me anything you want. And he asked for the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. I don't think good is as obvious as we think it is. I mean, you would think it is a good idea to preserve the life of your friend. Yet Peter does this and Jesus looks at him and says, and he sharply corrects him and says, Peter, you're seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. If you remember the rich young ruler, he comes running up to Jesus and he cries out, good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus answers this all important question of how to be saved, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? 
Nobody's good but God. Now, is Jesus not good? No, he is perfect good. But what Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler is, you have a reference point for good. God has a reference point for good. The two are not one and the same. Don't put me in your category. Good is all about a reference point. You know, the Masters is going on right now, right? I played Augusta National. I had the privilege of playing it two years ago. And I shot a 75 there my first round. That was a good round. That was a really good round. But if Jordan Spieth shoots the number, you know, number two golfer in the world, if he shoots 75 there today who's leading the Masters, he shot a really bad round. Because good is all about a reference point. What was good to me is bad to him. Are you seeing this? I remember when God really made this crystal clear to me. I was in Stockholm, Sweden. I had flown there to speak to 6,000 leaders from over 60 nations, mostly Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And I remember I had the whole day to pray, and I was praying about a situation, and I had judged this situation to be good. And the Holy Spirit in prayer very sternly said to me, no, son, it's not good. And he gave me scripture to support what he was saying to me. And I remember I found myself getting in a little, well, little argument with the Holy Spirit. And I finally kind of put my foot down. I said, but God, all the good that's come out of this situation. Then the Lord said this to me, and this is what impacted me deeply. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was attracted to. It was the good side. And I remember my Bible's laying on the bed, and I flew over to Genesis. And when I read these words, when the woman saw the tree was good, and that word good literally leapt up off the page at me, that it was pleasant, that it was desirable, she partook. And I'm standing there in shock in that hotel room in Sweden, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says this to me. He said, son, there is a good that will lead people away from me. And all of a sudden, I realized how Jesus' words would be fulfilled. You know, whenever G people ask Jesus what it was going to be like in our day, the day right before Jesus returns, do you know what the first words out of his mouth are? Be careful that you are not deceived. And he said the deception would be so rampant, so powerful, that if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Now, that used to bother me. I thought, elect, that's Christians. How are Christians going to be deceived? And all of a sudden in that hotel room, I realized that day, Christians are never going to be deceived by satanic rock concerts, by drug-infested parties, by sexual orgies. Christians, if possible, will be deceived by evil that is masked with good. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there is a way, there's a method, there's wisdom that seems right, it seems acceptable, it seems beneficial, it seems profitable. It seems wise. It seems good to a man. But its end, where it leads you, is where you don't want to find yourself. And then the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, now he is not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to a church. Paul says this to this church that he deeply, deeply loves. He said, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Now, look at the word corrupted. For something to corrupt means it was once good and went bad. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now, when God really opened up my eyes to this verse last year, I remember the first reaction for me was, wow, that's the exact example the Holy Spirit used with me in the hotel room in Sweden. So I started thinking, well, maybe there is more to this garden situation than what I've seen. So I started really praying 
about what happened in the garden because I felt like I was missing something. And the first thing the Lord showed me about the garden was that Eve was never lied about. She was never gossiped about. Some of you are going to get that in a minute. Um, She was never raped. She was never spoken to harshly by a man. She was never stolen from. Do you understand that she grew, she lived in a perfect environment. And to make matters even more complex, an environment that was permeated with the presence of God. How does the enemy get her to turn on God in this perfect environment? Because if we can understand how he can get her to turn on God in this perfect environment, we can understand how he can get us deceived in this corrupt environment called the world, right? So I really started praying. And what I discovered is this, the enemy had a four-step plan to get her deceived, all right? So the enemy approaches her. Now, I want to say this. He does not approach Adam. He approaches her. And there is a reason for that. Now, it's in the book, chapter two, but I'm not going to cover it. But let me say this. It is not, listen carefully, because she was inferior to man. Don't ever listen to a minister that tells you that women are inferior to men. Guys, you just missed a good place to say amen. Well, John, I thought the Bible said that the woman is the weaker vessel. Well, that only means she can't bench press as much as you. And some of them can. (laughs) So anyway, the serpent, and and, the first thing you got to remember is, I personally believe animals talked in the garden. Why do I believe that? Because she didn't faint when a snake started talking. Secondly, if you look at Balaam a few generations later, his donkey started talking to him and Balaam didn't faint. He just had a conversation with a donkey. So obviously oral tradition passed down that animals could talk in the garden. So this snake, totally Satan-possessed snake, approaches her and he's got a four-step plan. Everybody say a four-step plan. First thing he says to Eve. Now, before before I tell you that, let's just kind of back up just a second, all right? When God put man, Adam, in the garden, God said to him, you can freely eat from any tree in the garden, okay? Now, that's his generosity. Now, some people don't see it as generous because they think there's just two trees in the garden. I got news for you, there's a whole lot more than two trees in that garden, I mean, horticulturists tell us there are over over 2,500 different fruit-bearing trees in the planet. I have to believe at least one of each of those is representing the garden. So you know what God's saying? You can freely eat from 2,499 trees. That's his generosity. I mean, have you ever thought about all the good things God has given you? I mean, did you wake up this morning? Did you breathe, breathe clean air? Did you have a mattress? Did you have a roof over your head? Did you eat good food? Did you drink clean water? I mean, did you come to church and meet friends? I could talk to the rest of the service about all the good things God has done for us. But then God doesn't want this guy to be forced to be in relationship with him. Do you know why I love Mike and Rachel so much? Because they actually like me. (laughs) Nobody paid them to have me come speak. I mean, they had me come speak because they love me. That's the way God is. He doesn't want you to be forced to be in a relationship with him. So God says, except the tree that's in the midst of the garden, if you eat that one, you're just saying to me, I don't want a relationship anymore. You die, okay? So when the serpent approaches Eve, okay, the, he's got a four-step strategy to get her to turn away from God. Phase one of his strategy is this. He looks at her and says, so you can't eat from every tree, can you? What does he do with that one statement? He gets her eyes off the 2,499 that she can freely eat from onto the one that's restrained. 
That's exactly what he wants to do with you. He wants to get your eyes off of all the great things, the blessings that God has given you onto the one or two that's restrained. Good preaching, John. Amen. Thank you so much. I'll help you this morning, okay? So she responds, we can eat from the trees of the garden except the one now. But, but you got to remember, now her focus is on that tree. So then the serpent goes to phase two, and phase two is pretty risky. He negates the word of God. He looks at her and says, you won't die. Now, how often does this happen with us? you got a young man meets a young woman in church. They fall deeply in love with one another. They want to be married, but they can't be married for a couple of years. One day they kind of look at each other and they, say, they kind of go, you know what? You pay rent. I pay rent. You pay utilities. I pay separate utilities. You pay cable. I pay direct TV. Let's move in together. And so what have they done? They've just negated Ephesians chapter 5 that says, let not sexual immorality once be named among you. They've negated 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, avoid the very appearance of evil. They've negated Hebrews chapter 13, which says the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. They've negated it. Now listen to me. For what is good, what is acceptable to our society, what is beneficial to our finances, what is profitable for our future. Are you still here? Now, phase three, this is where the enemy's going to put the dagger in. This is where he's going to take her life. And he starts out phase three with the words, for God knows. Now, what is he implying by saying, for God knows? God knows something, Eve, that you don't. In other words, God is withholding something from you. He's hiding something from you. God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be just like God, knowing the difference between good and evil, right? Now, you got to remember, he's got to focus on that one tree. And remember, now listen, the tree is good. It's not evil. Are you with me? It gives the knowledge of good and evil, but it's not evil. The tree, it's good. So she's looking at this tree and her thoughts start going down the road. Wait a minute. There is something good in that tree for my husband and I, and God's withholding it from us. What has the enemy just done? He has perverted the character of God in her eyes and made God now look like a taker instead of the giver that he is. When he does that, he literally attacks the foundation of God's throne. Because the psalmist says, your throne is established on righteousness and justice. David's a king. He knows for a king to have an enduring reign, he has to be a man of integrity. The enemy goes after the very integrity of God. The moment he does, she turns on him and she eats. And phase four is a piece of cake. He offers her the good that God has withheld from her. This is why James comes along in the New Testament. And James says this, do not be deceived. Now that sounds like a command, but it is actually a promise. Do you know what James is saying? He's saying if you get this truth in you, you will become deceived proof. Now I don't know about you, but in a day when Jesus tells me the deception will be so clever that if possible, Christians will be deceived. I want to know how to make my life deceive-proof. Does anybody in here join me in that sentiment? Can I see a show of hands if you agree with me on that one? All right, so I want to know how to be deceive-proof. All right, so James tells you. He says, if you get this truth in you, you'll never be deceived. What's the truth? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, of whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. What is James saying? He's saying, if you get this truth in you, you'll never be deceived. I'm going to simplify the truth that he just wrote. You ready for it? 
What James is saying right there, put that scripture back up, is he's basically saying this. There is nothing good for you outside of God. Oh man, you should write that down. Say that with me. There is nothing good for my life. No, no, no. Everybody's supposed to say it. There's nothing good for my life outside of God. I don't care how good it looks, how beneficial it seems, how acceptable it is in society, how profitable it appears, how sweet she talks to you and how absolutely rude your wife has been to you. If it is contrary to the written word of God, it will ultimately bring you to a destination, a place you don't want to find yourself. Good preaching. Amen. So what is the reference point? Remember I said good is all about a reference point. What's our reference point? Paul tells us right before he leaves this earth, these are some of the last words he wrote on the planet earth. He, Paul says, all scripture, everybody said all scripture is inspired by God and he's useful to teach us what is true, what is good, and to make us realize what is wrong, bad in our lives. Look at this. It corrects us when we're wrong, bad. Somebody says, yeah, but wait a minute. I don't like correction. Really? Watch this. Finding directions to San Diego, California. Head west, then turn left on Highway 105. Rerouting. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Make a U-turn. I'm pretty sure I've been here before. I think I know what I'm doing. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Make a U-turn. Rerouting. Make a U-turn. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Obviously, you don't know where you're going. All right. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock. if you don't know where you've been, how do you know where you're going? You don't. Make a U-turn. Do a U-turn. He wanted to go to San Diego. He ended up in Saskatchewan. I don't know why people say correction is so negative. If you're on the wrong road, it gets you on the right road. If you're on the right road, it keeps you on the right road. So you really, if you really want to know the truth, the person that hates correction is stupid. Now, I didn't say that. Don't get mad at me. I mean, look, God's the first one to say that. He who hates correction is stupid, all right? Don't look at me in that tone of voice, all right? So now that's what the scriptures do. They show us what's God's standard for right, right? If you look at the Hebrew word for good, the New International, or excuse me, the Encyclopedia of Biblical Words says about the Hebrew word for good, only because God has shared his evaluation of good in his word, in the scripture, are we who rely on him able to affirm with confidence that a certain thing, quality, or course of action is beneficial for our life. Everybody say the scripture. The scripture should be the final say. So can we talk about the scripture? Because to be really honest with you, I find the scripture is under attack today, not just outside the church. I'm talking about inside. There are groups, there are churches that are literally eliminating chapters, verses out of the New Testament, and it's scary, okay? So can we talk about the Bible for a minute? 66 books in the Bible written over a span of 1,500 years. Would you go back 1,500 years? If you go back 1,500 years, you're at 516 AD, right? Do you realize you're, the British Empire hasn't even been thought of, and it's only 200 years after Constantine of, of the Roman Empire. 
I mean, that's a long time ago. 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 writers from three different continents in three different languages. Many of these guys didn't even live in the same generation. Many of them don't even know what the other guys wrote. You put all their writings together over 1,500 years and you get this perfectly harmonized book called the Bible? Come on, what are the chances? I mean, go back to 516 AD, pick out a guy, say, write a chapter. Go to 616 AD, 100 years later, pick out another guy, write a chapter. Do this with 40 guys over the span of 1,500 years. Come to 2016 and tell me you got a book that makes any sense. But then, if you look at the Old Testament to sweeten the deal, everybody say the Old Testament. 39 books written over 1,100 years by several different writers. Many of them didn't even live in the same generation, don't even know what the other guys wrote. The last book of the Old Testament's written 400 years before Jesus was even born. Would you go back 400 years? There is no LSU Tigers. I mean, there's no America. The pilgrims just got on the boat. Do you understand how long 400 years is, okay? Now, those writers living in different generations of the Old Testament, many not knowing what the other guys wrote, made predictions about the coming Messiah. They call them prophecies. They're just predictions. Predictions like the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed, betrayed by a friend. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that 30 pieces of silver would buy a potter's field. All this was predicted He would be crucified. He would be buried in brand new tomb. There are over 300 of these predictions with the last one being made 400 years before Jesus is born. And Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300 of these predictions. What are the chances? Okay, so there's a scientist who lived in the 20th century named Dr. Peter Stoner. He's an expert in probability. What is simple probability? If I have a five-gallon paint bucket and I have nine white tennis balls and one yellow tennis ball and I blindfold somebody, shake them all up and say, pick one ball out of the bucket, the chances of picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in 10. That's simple probability. Well, this guy, Peter Stoner, Dr. Stoner, is an expert in it, but he doesn't do his work alone. He employs 600 science students from 12 different classes and they go on this massive research of what are the probabilities, what's the chances that any human being on earth could fulfill eight prophecies and they said any human being from the time of Christ to the end of 2000 2000 years so here's the eight prophecies that they chose number one Christ to be born in Bethlehem Micah writes that number two Christ to be preceded by a messenger Isaiah and Malachi in totally different generations write that Christ to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah in a completely different generation writes that. Christ to be betrayed by a friend. The psalmist in a totally different generation writes that. And then here's the rest of the eight prophecies. So they pick these eight prophecies, right? And they go through hours and hours of research on what are the chances that anybody could fulfill these eight prophecies. Now, their work was reviewed by a third party. And you know who the third party was that reviewed their work? the National American Scientific Council. And the National American Scientific Council said not only was their work accurate, it was conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative. 
So Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists, after hours of research and calculations, determined the chances of any human being on earth over 2,000 years fulfilling those eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, 10 to the 17th means a one with 17 zeros behind it. Does anybody even know what that number is? I mean, I got news for you. It's not bazillion, kajillion. Now, I don't know that number, but I can illustrate that number. If I have that many silver dollars, I have no place on earth to store them. I just got to spread them out across the ground. And if I spread out that many silver dollars, I will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. You ever driven from Texarkana to El Paso? Over 14 hours at 75 miles per hour, no rest stops. The entire state, two feet deep. Now, gather all those silver dollars, mark one of them. Shuffle them all up, redistribute them all over the state of Texas, blindfold a guy in Louisiana, put him in a helicopter, start flying anywhere he wants to fly over the state of Texas. He then says, let down, he gets out of the helicopter, still blindfolded, and he picks one silver dollar. The chances of him picking our marked one silver dollar is the chances that any human being over 2,000 years could fulfill just eight of those prophecies, yet Jesus fulfilled them all. That's where you clap. So Dr. Stoner said, and his 600 scientists said, what about 16 prophecies? So they go through hours and hours and hours of calculations, right? And you know what they determine? The chances of any human being over 2,000 years fulfilling 16 of the prophecies is one in 10 to the 45th power. That is the one with 45 zeros behind it. Now, if I have that many silver dollars, I can't store them on the earth. I just got to make a big ball, a big sphere of silver dollars, solid silver dollars. And you know how big that sphere would be? The diameter of that sphere would be 60 times the distance of the earth to the sun. If you want miles, 5.5 billion miles. If you want to know where it falls in our universe, it falls right at the outer planet, Neptune. Did you see the Martian? It took five months going 25,000 miles an hour just to get to Mars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars, shuffle them all up, blindfold the guy, put him in a jet plane. It would take 400 years to fly in a jet plane around that sphere nonstop. At any point in time, our guy says, let the jet down. He then may have to dig 2.75 billion miles to the center because the Mark one might be in the center and he's got to do it blindfolded. But he picks one of those silver dollars. The chance of picking out our one Mark silver dollar is chances that any human being could fulfill 16 of those prophecies Yet Jesus fulfilled all 16 of them. So can I blow your mind? Can I go one more? So Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists said, what about 48 prophecies? Now remember, what I'm saying is conservative according to the National American Scientific Council. So they do hours of research. You know what they figure out? The chances of any human being fulfilling 48 prophecies is 10, one in 10 to the 157th power. Now if I have that, that big a number, I can't use silver dollars. You'll never relate to it. I got to go to a smaller item. I got to go down to an electron. Do you know how big an electron is? If I have a one inch line of electron, one inch, straight line, and I start counting them right now at 250 per minute, and I don't go to sleep, it will take me 19 million years to count that one inch line of electron. Did you hear what I just said? 19 million years, nonstop, 250 per minute, no sleep. Now, if I have that many electrons, I got to make a big ball of electrons, solid electrons. 
Do you know how big this sphere would be? As far as man has ever seen into space with the Hubble Space, Tech, space Telescope. 13 billion light years. Okay, mark one of those electrons. Okay, shuffle them all up, blindfold a guy, bring him to Cape Kennedy, send him off in the space shuttle, and at any point in time, he can say stop. He gets out of the shuttle and still blindfolded, picks out one electron. The chance of picking out our one marked electron is the chance that any human being could fulfill 48 of those prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled all 48. Not only did he fulfill all 48, he fulfilled all 300. Now, can we review what we just said? We got 39 books written by several different writers over 1,100 years, many of them not living in the same generation, don't even know what the other guys wrote. They make over 300 predictions of the coming Messiah, with the last one being made 300, 400 years before Jesus is even born. And Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300. And you tell me the Bible doesn't apply to today? You're stupid. Okay, I'm going to segue. Last year, I'm on a flight going from Denver to Honolulu, and I'm doing a conference in Honolulu, and it's an eight-hour flight nonstop, and I got to edit this book, and I got a lot of work to do. I'm way behind. So I thought, I'm going to edit the book on the plane. And what happens is I get on the plane, and I get next to a talker, and she will not stop talking. And I'm even starting to act a little rude, and she won't stop. So finally, I close my computer. I'm like, this isn't going to work. So I turn and start talking to her. Now, she's a really attractive blonde woman. She has a home in Tahiti, a home in Hawaii, a home in New York, and a home in Paris. And all she does is play. And um, she's on her way to her home in Hawaii. So we get to talking for like 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, I get my opening. And I start telling her about Jesus. And she goes, oh, John, John, before you go any further, you need to know something about me. I said, what, what? She said, I am a devout atheist. And you know, before I could even think, this is what came out of my mouth. I said, oh, come on, you are way smarter than that. And she looked at me with shock. Like, I mean, I can close my eyes and still see the shock on her face. Because you know what she said to me next? She said, that's actually what I was going to say to you. I said, oh, come on, let's talk about it. So after a few minutes of talking about it, I got my editing done. True story. See, this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us. Look, if you, if you look at this, this is written to Christians. Look at the words here. We must, not we should. We must listen, not just carefully, very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift away from it. You know, drifting doesn't happen consciously. When I was a boy, I loved to fish. I grew up in White Lake, Michigan. One time I was so excited about fishing, I forgot to anchor. Do you know, I looked up after 30 minutes of fishing, I didn't even recognize the shoreline. I drifted so far from where I started because drifting doesn't happen knowingly. Can you imagine if you were told you had to cross a landmine field? 10 miles long, 10 miles wide, there's thousands of landmines buried underground. You step on one of them, you're dead. Somebody hands you a map showing you where every single one of those buried landmines is. How do you handle that map? You kind of just throw it in your backpack and say, I'll read it if I got time. Do you kind of just glance at it and go, I got it, put it in your backpack and start out? If you do either of those, they carry you out in a body bag. I'm going to tell you what you do. You study that map like crazy. Then you put it in a place easier to reach in your water bottle. And every couple steps, you pull it out looking at it. Well, let me tell you something. That is a true scenario. We are walking through a landmine field, and it's called this world. 
And that is why we are told, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, when I wrote this book, in the process of writing it, I had three international ministers. If I said their names, most of you would know all three of them. They all said to me on three different occasions, three different states, they said, John Bevere, this is the most important book you have written for the body of Christ today. Now, I really questioned it. I thought, man, I wrote Beta Satan. What do you mean more important than Beta Satan? But you know, I was on my face. The presence of God was so strong on me with one of them. So when, I, when the third man said it, I went to God and I said, God, why this book? Why is this book so important? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, because it is a calibration book. And I thought, calibration? You calibrate a machine to get accurate readings, right? But I thought, because the Holy Spirit was so strong, I thought, I'll go a little further. I started researching calibration. I found out the word calibration is used most frequently in regard to gas detectors that they put in chemical factories. Federal law, our federal law, requires that every room in a chemical factory has a gas detector because a little toxins in the air can damage the workers for life and even kill them. And I know this firsthand because my dad worked for DuPont and safety was crazy important to them. So I found out that Honeywell is the number one manufacturer of these gas detectors and I went right to their website. This is not a Christian website, it's Honeywell's website. And I went to the search page and I said, how do I calibrate your gas detectors and it brought me right to the page the technicians use to calibrate the gas detectors and in bold letters at the top of the page this is amazing but it's true it said we the manufacturers strongly recommend that these gas detectors are calibrated daily did you hear what I just said daily and then they gave the reason in bold letters they said because the atmosphere of the chemical factory will corrupt the sensors eventually corrupt the sensors so then they said how to calibrate it. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna really simplify this because it was in very technical terms, but basically they have to take the, cal the, the gas detectors down and bring them into a clean air room. And you know what they do in the clean air room? They clean off the sensors, re-zero out the machine so that when they put it back out in the factory, they know they're getting accurate readings. Well, let me tell you something, your heart, our heart is our sensor. We live in a corrupt environment, it's called the world. Every day we should be going to a clean air room. It's called the Word of God and the presence of God. What happens? Our heart gets washed. So it gets, right? It gets clean, right? Are you with me? So when we go back out into the corrupt environment, we're not conformed to it. But we prove, see, it's not a formula, what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's not a formula. Why is calibration so important? Two reasons. Number one, you are the only Jesus the lost are ever going to see. And if you are out of calibration, they won't see Jesus. Second reason, which is more important to you personally, it's all about intimacy with God. Okay, do you know what the number one desire of every Christian is? Is to have intimacy with God. But if you're out of calibration, it would be like trying to listen to a radio station on 88.9, but you're at 90.5. You're not going to hear that station. And then do you know what happens? Christianity gets really boring, and you kind of sit there on Sunday and just sit there like this. Because why? You're so out of calibration, you don't realize it. Sure is quiet in this Methodist church. Are you still here? <laughs> you're, you're still here, right? Okay. Are you, are you, are you tracking with what I'm saying? 
This is why kids get so bored. This is why young people, this is why older people, everybody, older people just keep going because they know it's what to do. But young people get just like, what's the use? See, in all my travels across America, I'm finding out that we're really out of calibration. I'm in churches all over America. And I'm like, I'm the average Christian in America. I mean, I go to, I'm be, I'll be in the Middle East in two, week, in two months, speaking to 4,000 leaders. Do you know many of those leaders I'm going to speak to? Do you know their life is on the line every single day? Do you know that if they get caught, they get arrested and they never hear from them again? Do you understand? In America, though, what's the indication if we're calibrated? I'll tell you the indication. We get more excited in Death Valley than we do in the auditorium. That, that's, that's, one, that's one place to say, am I calibrated correctly? Are you with me? And so here's the thing. The good news is this. You know, I've been reading the Bible for 37 years. Do you know, I got up this morning and what I couldn't wait to do was read. I'm reading right now, Deuteronomy and Hebrews. And Hebrews was so good this morning, I had to force myself, pull myself away from it because I was getting picked up by these guys. Seriously, I'm not kidding. I literally did not want to get out of it. I've been reading the Bible for 37 years. Why? Because see, if you're tuned in, you hear, and then all of a sudden, it's interesting. Oh, don't you love this radio station, 88.9? Isn't it amazing? And all you hear is, no, it's really not that interesting. Well, you're at 90.5, that's why. You getting what I'm saying? Let's get back and get calibrated so the world can see Jesus in us and so we can enjoy intimacy with God. Did you get something out of this? Did you get something out of this? Amen. I want every head bowed, every eye closed, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for what you've given us today. And Lord, I'm so grateful for what you've done. Now, Holy Spirit, draw men and women to Jesus, I pray. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Now, I want you to really listen to what I'm about to say. You can come to church. You can say Jesus is the Son of God. You can know that he was crucified on the cross. He was buried. He was raised from the dead and still not have a covenant relationship with God. You say, John, how could you say that? Well, let me give you an example. You can have a girl dating a guy. She knows he's an excellent quarterback. She knows he's got a scar on his forehead from a bicycle accident that he was in when he was 14 years old. She knows he's an excellent science student. She's been to his house. She's met his siblings. That doesn't give her a covenant relationship with him. It's not until one day when that guy gets down on one knee and opens up a little ring box and says, will you marry me? Now she's got a choice to make. She can ignore his proposal or say no, and she will continue life as is, knowing about him, but not having a covenant relationship. Or she can say yes. And if she says yes, do you know what that means? A couple months later, she's gonna walk down an aisle of a church with a white dress on, and you know what she's communicating? She's saying goodbye to every guy on the face of the earth except that one guy. She's giving her entire heart, her entire life to him. Well, let me tell you something. When Jesus, Jesus Christ, our creator, hung on that cross, which we sang about this morning, and he shed every drop of blood in his body, that was him getting down on one knee, saying to you and I, would you be my bride, the bride of Christ? And now we have a decision to make. We can ignore his proposal or say no. 
and we will continue life as is, knowing about Jesus, even coming to his house and meeting his genuine siblings here in church. But we can say yes, and if we say yes, we're gonna do what that bride does. We're gonna give him our entire heart, our entire life. 34 years ago, when Lisa Toscano walked down the church aisle with the white dress on, she gave her heart to me. Can I tell you, she and I both messed up the first week. We messed up the first year. We made mistakes, yelled at each other the first few years. We've made mistakes even in our 34th year. But let me tell you something that's never changed. She gave me her heart and she's never given her heart to another man since. We're not talking about the way you behave. We're talking about your heart, giving it entirely, entirely to him. Some of you sitting here this morning, oh, you can fool the person sitting next to you, but why do you want to fool yourself? You know, truth be told, you have not given your entire heart and life to Jesus. You believe in him. You believe he died on the cross. You attend church. You know his genuine siblings. But you know, truth be told, you haven't given your entire heart. Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org or give us a call at 225-753-2273.